Welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author, Deal W. Hudson, who along with his co-author Matt Schlapp wrote the book The Desecrators, Defeating the Cancel Culture Mob and Reclaiming One Nation Under God, published by TAN Books, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog. Welcome, Deal. Great to have you on again with Bookmark. It's always good to talk books with you, Doug. Very good. The Desecrators, that's a tough title. Where did that title come from? What, this, what is this book about? You know, when we came up with the idea of a book addressing these things like cancel culture, wokeness, white privilege, Black Lives Matter, you know, the chaos that we're dealing with. Uh, I told Matt, I said, Matt, we've got to come up with something that gets to the root of what all these things, terrible things have in common. Mm-hmm. No, we can't have a title like uh, cancel culture, blah, blah, blah. We need a title that, that names the enemy, that names it. And, you know, in conversation, I just said, we're really talking about acts of desecration here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people who want to destroy all we have. We hold sacred, uh, not just in our nation, mm-hmm. but in mm-hmm. our faith, in our basic moral values. And so we go through and we show how uh, in a comprehensive way, these desecrators mm-hmm. are going at the very root of our, of our Christian faith, right. of a nation founded on Judeo-Christian principles, on the very notion of there being tr- uh, a truth that can be grasped by the mind, mm-hmm. family, sexuality. I mean, all of it for the desecrators is an object of derision and of attack. Mm-hmm. Right. It's interesting, uh, too, because uh, as you point that out, in a sense, they're attacking all the things that we've held sacred, whether they be in the secular world or in the or, or in the religious yeah. realm as well, uh, both being attacked. Right. Yeah, because the secular world contains very strong vestiges of the Judeo-Christian Western civilization that our nation grew out of. Mm-hmm. It's in the, you know, when we when we divide sacred and secular, we forget that it's not an absolute division at all. There's a lot of overlap, As, you know, especially in, in the way people, fundamental moral values, what we call family values, all that came out of the Judaism and Christianity. Right. Now, in the uh, foreword by Mercedes Schlapp, uh, Matt's wife, she writes, While the desecrators seek to take control of our lives, we found a way to push back and not accept the lies of the left. We remember a time when we pledged allegiance to the American flag using the words under God and told our children what the flag stands for, freedom. Then she goes on to say the desecrators will fail because God is in charge and the devil will be defeated and there is no middle ground. That seems to be the case everywhere. There is no middle ground anymore. You can't sit on the fence, right? You know, Doug, I hope we have finally learned that. In other words, by we, I mean not just Catholics, Christians, or conservatives. I I mean, all of us have goodwill toward everybody, or at least we should. You know, we're taught to love thy neighbor. Mm -hmm. So I've seen generation after generation of people with traditional values, with with a Catholic Christian worldview, you know, try to find common ground with people on what we call the left or the far left, or they call themselves the progressives. And what I've seen time after time is they don't want common ground. They want to pretend there's common ground so that they can gain a kind of smokescreen for what they're really up to, the the radicality of what they're up to, the desecration. Mm -hmm. And I've seen time and time again that those kinds of attempts at common ground do not work 
because the other side just ain't interested. Right. And you mentioned the fact in the introduction here, you guys write that you were being attacked by evil forces that hate both America and the church. And then you go on to say, as you were talking about, for half a century, people of faith have seen traditional ideas of morality undermined, but we were overconfident. In what way were we overconfident? We were overconfident uh, because we didn't care about ideas as much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm now 72. I've been going around uh, either teaching or talking about philosophy, theology, and literature all my life, Doug, you know, since I was in college. Mm -hmm. And constantly I would meet the businessman type who would, oh, yeah, that's interesting, but let's, let's talk about business or let's talk about money. And I would keep saying, you've got to care about ideas. You've got to care about what goes on in the university. You've got to care about how that is spilling over into public schools mm -hmm. through the mm -hmm. teachers that are educated in universities. Mm -hmm. And law, you know, law schools and nursing schools, all these things where these bad ideas have taken hold, the ideas that the business community was too busy to care about. In fact, they ended up funding much of it without just because they wanted to be connected with prestigious institutions. Right. So we didn't right. realize, but I think some of us did have known for a long time since the 60s, mm -hmm. that these ideas were something that we had, to do, we had to meet head on if it meant walking away from a lot of institutions that frankly we would like to have been identified with. Right. Well, you talk about the idea when a society begins to unwind, chaos ensues. And you talk about the fact that it's all about tearing things down. And you also refer to them as nihilists. And what, what is a nihilist, and, and how does that relate to the desecrators? A nihilist is simply someone who doesn't believe there's any basic foundation for morality or for knowledge. For that. In mm -hmm. other words, uh, re your reality is what you create. You're like a man standing in front of, an, of a blank slate. You paint yourself. You paint your identity. You paint your worldview. You paint what human happiness is. You, you paint what the meaning of love is and so forth. And it's, up, it's your reality, and it doesn't have to correspond to anything that measures you. And what we, we believe as Catholics is that we are measured. Our morality measures us. Our worldview is measured by the worldview of the church as expressed through the doctrine and catechisms of the church. In other words, the truth is something we discover. It's not something we create. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right here, but even more damaging is the Death Star strategy the desecrators have built in an attempt to destroy any vestige of mom, apple pie, and the America we once knew. Why are they so desperate to tear it down? They want to tear it down because they hate it. Mm -hmm. Why do they, they really, hate it? Why do they hate you know, it? When I wrote a book a while back, and I think we talked about it on your show called mm -hmm. Onward Christian Soldiers, it was about Catholics and Evangelicals in the public square. Right. In my interviews, and I did about 200 interviews of major uh, political and religious leaders, and what I came to see is these guys and these women on the left, they really hate us. Mm -hmm. They really want us to go away and never be heard from again. You're asking, why do they hate us? Mm -hmm. Hate us because they think the things we believe in have personally hurt them, have personally limited them, have personally restricted uh, their growth as human beings, or, they, or have gotten in the way of their success in life. 
So they see our side as limiting their personal freedom and, the, and limiting their aspirations. Now, what's interesting, you talk about the abolition of the family. It's mentioned here several times, even going back to Marx and the attack on the family. The desecrators deliberately promote sexual confusion, particularly among children who are totally vulnerable to their manipulation. And we I can see that probably more dramatically today than we ever did before. But why the attack on the family? Um, to dis you know, it's the underpinning of society. But do many of these people, when you look into their background, do they have dysfunctional family lives? Is that part of their hate of the family? I really do. I'm amazed at how many times I look into the uh, personal background of a so-called progressive or someone like Marx or Hegel, any of these guys, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. Sark, and find out that they either had no father, sometimes they didn't have a mother after they were 12 or 13, mm -hmm. had very hard mm -hmm. lives. And the thing is this, they go after the family is because the family is what shapes a human being. A family is where a human being grows from conception to their teens or their 20s and is given their fundamental worldview, their fundamental moral values, their faith, they have faith, and their regard for the nation they live in. This is, this is where all the seeds are planted. Uh, tyrants, since Plato's Republic, have wanted the state to get control of children as, almost as soon as they were born, because this, they wanted, tyrants want to control, this is true of Stalin, this is true of Mao and so forth. Uh, they want to control what seeds are planted in these young people. Now, you also make the point here about the idea of thinking of the council culture as, in a sense of a new inquisition. This intolerant push by modern radicals is to entice us to accept any form of immorality while accepting no form of forgiveness. That's an interesting phrase. What do you mean, no form of forgiveness? Well, you know, it, it's interesting that their morality uh, convicts those that don't agree with them, uh, but their morality is willing to forgive their own regardless of what they do. Mm -hmm. So their morality is really not a morality at all. It's simply an ex exercise of power. They, see, they use a morality that most people accept. Things about do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal. But when their own side does it, they don't, they don't do anything except let it pass by. But when the other side does it, it's the front page of the New York Times and the Washington right. Post and so forth. Well, that shows that they don't really care about the morality at all. They only care about the power they can derive from it to hurt, to cancel, to kill mm -hmm. uh, the people that, that oppose them. Well, let me ask you, you refer to the idea, I think a great phrase, digital death virtually with the whole idea of the cancel culture and the world today, even more so, you can really be shunned, I mean, totally in the sense of being kicked off Facebook or Twitter, those kind of things. But why, why is it so nasty? Why does it seem like it's not just a disagreement? It really is the idea that we must destroy you. You know, Doug, I've asked this question all my adult life. Because when I was younger at the University of Texas in the, in the 60s, I had liberal friends with whom I had tremendous disagreements, but we were great friends. Somewhere along the line, uh, the relationship between liberals and conservatives, left and right, be became unbridgeable. 
and I, of course, I think it came from the left, mm -hmm. that they really consider us, and this, I think, is the root of the hatred, mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. consider us immoral people. And they particularly think we're racist. Mm -hmm. Way down deep, they think anybody who is patriotic, Christian, anyone who really uh, holds up the founders uh, of this country as people to be respected, they consider us uh, lower on a moral scale than they are, and they think we're fundamentally racist. I'm not at all surprised that racism has become such a hot topic uh, with the more or less the victory of the desecrators in the public square. They think we're, they think they're better than us. Right. Now, you make the point here, said, no doubt what we observe about our nation's problems and what we propose to help correct them will offend some people regardless of how we say it. Why did you want to make that point? Because, that, I'm so glad you picked that out. Mm -hmm. uh, because so many times when people write books or give speeches and they address these things, they pull their punches. Mm -hmm. That is... They want to. They hope what they're saying or writing finds common ground with the middle, the middle. Those who are uh, in can be influenced one way or the other. As I said, and I and Matt Schlapp agrees, the time for that kind of sort of uh, gentleness, that kind of uh, rhetorical kindness, is over. Why? Because we're losing. Mm -hmm. Because it's time to fight. It's time to speak and act directly. Uh, this is why now I wear a flag mm -hmm. on my lapel. Uh, we asked the question in the book, what would happen if 75 million people, those who voted pro-life in the last election, mm -hmm. were to put flags in their yards on the same day in this nation? Mm -hmm. what would, it would have huge impact. Why? Because the other side would find out they're not in the majority at all. They would find out most of their neighbors disagree with them, of course, unless they live in a suburb of Boston or someplace like that. There right. wouldn't be a lot of flags. But there would be some flags that would really surprise them. And you you being from New York City, you understand what I'm right. saying. Absolutely. Well, heavenly, I know from Long Island how they would vote. You know, you say, as we survey this moment in the history of America and our church, the element most missing is hope. When everyone becomes focused on a narrow temporal means, this candidate, that policy, the long view, the conviction that God remains active in history is forgotten. You go on to say, hope is not only confidence in the afterlife, but an expectation that the future can be better, a greater good for human life and society. Hope. Hope is the firm conviction that good lies in our future. And we know that God is with us. We know that God is waiting for us in heaven. But, you know, I think prayers to the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is God's presence all around us. I had a personal situation with a family member. I started praying to the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, within months, it was this drastic change. I thought it would never change. Mm -hmm. But I think we're looking around America and seeing, we're seeing mothers taking over school boards. We're seeing truckers in Canada, United States, mm -hmm. saying, you know, we've had enough. It's kind of like that network moment when Peter Finch starts right, yelling, right, right, you know, right. and we we see this happening. And I really think the next election is going to be the bloodbath that people are saying it, it's going to be. I think that the decency of America, which is in large part due to its traditions of faith, both Christian, Jewish and other, is coming to the surface, that basic commitment 
to kindness, not kind, well, kindness, but mostly to justice and common sense. Right. I think we're seeing right. that surfacing. So and you're by gonna, the way, so you're the latter day Howard Beale. Is that what we expect here? Yeah. I thought about it often. <laughs> but when they talk about canceling culture, I mean, you think about canceling history. And see, what is Christianity other than a truth that revealed in history? It's hit. In other words, what is Jesus's life other than 33 years in history? What about the apostles? What about the church itself? The Catholic Church was revealed through and in history and continues to be so. You start canceling culture, which means to cancel history or the, the meaning of history, you start playing with that, you are getting at the roots of faith. One of the topics you deal with uh, right near the beginning is shaming. Uh, we always talk about the fact that nobody has any guilt anymore, nobody's ashamed, but yet shaming is a pretty powerful device, isn't it? It's become powerful because, for some reason, people uh, feel uh, intimidated by being called racist. You know, they feel intimidated by being called ignorant. They feel intimidated by being called uh, fascist or Nazis or whatever. Uh, this is part of the problem. You know, people are not as well educated in the in the younger generations as our gen not that our generation was all that perfect. Mm -hmm. But we got mm -hmm. history, right? We got basic building blocks of Western civilization and, and American uh, nation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a lot of the people that are feel intimidated are those who don't understand the game that's being played with them. Mm -hmm. They really mm -hmm. do think, well, maybe I am. Mm -hmm. If so and so says I am, if that person on MSNBC, CBS, or NBC says, I must be a racist if I support a certain political candidate. Maybe they do believe that. They've got to, you know, become big boys and realize right. this is just a tactic, nothing less. You say in Chapter 6, one moment to shout. We must shout rather than whisper. Often conservatives or traditionalists, they wince at the tactics of the left, of Saul Alinsky and other communist agitators. We, do, we would argue that tactics in and of themselves should, of course, be moral, but they do not have to be stale. Explain. Right. Well, this is what I'm talking. In other words, this whole uh, a legacy that really came came in with George W. Bush, this legacy of trying to pitch to the middle, mm -hmm. to pitch mm -hmm. to the 20% in the middle, and and to what it's done is ignore the hard left. You can go ahead and pitch to the middle, but you got to hammer the far left. You've got to call out their lies. Mm -hmm. You've got to call out their ignorance. And you've got to call out the shaming tactics that they're using. And you've got to throw it right back at them. Mm -hmm. You can't mm -hmm. let them get away with, with, with lying about you or lying about a group of people. Because what is that? That's pure prejudice. And in some cases, it's reverse racism. Right. You say here, when you engage the cultural and political battle, you should expect the desecrators to use your past against you. But do not flinch at spiritual warfare and must be seen as a struggle that you must engage in. Absolutely, you know, and we all have past. And, you know, we, if you get out into the public square, and Doug, you know this because you've been in media all your life, uh, they're going to dig at you. And, they're, you know, you can only imagine how much they dug at <laughs> Donald Trump, I mean, my <laughs> Lord. And so there's, uh, that is a cost to be to be paid for anyone who has the courage to stand up. 
whether it's at a school board meeting mm -hmm. or at a meeting of the city council or at a dinner party or at a church function, anywhere. We need people to not run and hide mm -hmm. when the bad guys start, you know, telling their lies, you know, telling, you know, sort of uh, repeating what they heard on NBC Nightly News the night before. Mm -hmm. Because if you start really looking at this stuff, they're just mimicking each other. There's not any original ideas. There's just this one idea or two ideas put out that evening, you know, on the on the evening news, and then everybody starts parroting it the next day. Right, absolutely. I thought this was interesting, too. You say in rejecting the new narrative, because you refer to the 1619 Project and those kind of things, you say, the country's not perfect. In fact, it allows for the execution of millions of unborn babies each year, but it is a force for good and is the envy of freedom-loving people everywhere. When I hear that, I say amen, and I say how many people say, I know, but I want America to be all it can be. Well, you know, I, I think anybody who's had children knows that, that the, uh, the paucity of that line. Mm -hmm. uh, the perfect being the enemy of the good. Right. And I think, you know, we have a we have a wonderful nation with its problem. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I wouldn't want to be a citizen of anywhere else. And I really think why is it that people stream across our borders year after year after year and a half since it's since our founding? Exactly. You also mentioned here, I thought it was interesting, you, you talked about an old friend of ours, Father Benedict Rochelle, and why he was important to you. Why? Well, he, uh, I used to go on spiritual retreat with him every year, just me, or maybe me and a couple of friends. And uh, at the time, I was going through some pretty heavy, heavy guilt myself. And he would say, deal? You know, that's not your only sin. <laughs> he would say, you say, let the poverty you're feeling bless you. He would say, deal, the happiest people I know are the poor. And you are feeling poor in spirit. Let that pour over you with grace. And after you know a couple of times hearing that, I let it, I let it, and it did. Right. Now you write here. Our goal in writing this book is not just to identify the efforts of the desecrators to to reimagine America by first destroying the effective structures created some 250 years ago, but to offer new tactics. What would some of those tactics be? I think those tactics are simply the something we've seen them do. They've taken over universities almost, you know, 99%. There's only 20 colleges in the country, maybe 30, I would, I would recommend anybody go to. They've taken over all the professional organizations, medical organizations, legal organizations, media organizations, you know, any, any professional group. And finally, you know, they sent they took over journalism schools, as you well know. Mm -hmm. Right, the Woodward and Bernstein effect, kind of, uh, which we experienced. Now, in Chapter 21, canceling the support for the unborn, you say there's no reason to be surprised at a lack of Catholic outcry against the Catholic candidate for president, Joseph Biden, who was enthusiastically pro-abortion. Why wasn't there an outcry? Because the Catholic Church, including its leadership, uh, I became a Catholic in 1984. And I was completely surprised by what I discovered because I had been a 10-year journey on the way to the church. And I was, I was pro-life before I got into the church. And 
I was surprised and I continue to be surprised by the lack of leadership at every level, lay, clerical, mm -hmm. uh, on the life issue. And I'm, I'm totally surprised at how often pro-life leaders uh, have obstacles thrown in their way right. to right. their work. And this is not to defend everything they do, okay? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, we would not have pro-abortion Catholic leaders like Biden and Pelosi if there had been greater, more committed, more outspoken leadership. Well, you quote a document in here, and you talk about tips for conducting candidate forums, cover a broad range of issues, focusing on one issue will create the appearance of endorsing some candidates or others. A broader focus will be more effective. Well, what I mean, isn't it sad that uh, the, I don't know if that was a bishop's conference or just one state conference, but that particular instruction uh, said that the abortion, the, the pro-life issue belongs to one political party. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's a tragedy in that. And it's especially tragic that the assumption is you should not uh, stress the life issue because you might help one party over the other, as if the uh, helping the party or not helping the party is more important than the issue itself. Absolutely. Well Just said. Appreciate you writing the book, Deal Hudson, along with his co-author Matt Schlapp, The Desecrators, Defeating the Cancel Culture Mob, and they are out there, and Reclaiming One Nation Under God, available through our EW10 Religious Catalog. Check it out and check us out next time, right here on EW10's Bookmark. Thank you.